Hello and welcome to this week's episode of In Relation To. Coming up, we're very excited to have Ethan Wong on this week's episode. Ethan is the president of Boston University's International Affairs Association, abbreviated as BUYA by its students. We were lucky enough to get the chance to sit down with him to discuss his personal journey through college thus far, how he got to the top, his plans for the future, and some amazing advice for all of our listeners. This is a good one that you really don't want to miss. So keep listening if you want to hear about Ethan's fascinating educational path. Enjoy the episode. Okay, so hi Ethan. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. So why don't we begin by you telling us a little bit about yourself? Mm-hmm. Amazing. So hi guys, my name is Ethan. I'm currently a senior at Boston University, majoring in neuroscience and minoring in philosophy. Um, in terms of neuroscience, my sort of concentration is cellular and molecular neurobiology. Um, in terms of involvement on campus, I'm currently the president of the Boston University International Affairs Association, as well as I serve as secretary of BU Mix, which is our K-pop dance team, and associate justice for our Boston University student government, as well as a writer for the Pre-Lab Review. Okay, wow. Um, <laughs> so... We can safely presume that most of our listeners already know about the Boston University International Affairs Association. But in case they don't, why don't you tell us a little bit about what Buya, as it's lovingly known, is really all about? Yeah, absolutely. So Buya, as we affectionately call it, is the premier international diplomacy global affairs organization on campus. We are the largest student organization at Boston University. StuGov likes to say that they're the largest, and I kind of agree that when you add it all up together, they're probably the largest. But in terms of independent student organizations, we are the biggest. And with being the biggest comes a lot of different moving parts. We have seven different branches, ranging from our competitive Model UN team, Monet BU, which is top five in the country when it comes to collegiate Model UN. Our two conferences, Barman and Bosman, run for collegiate students and high school students, respectively. For college students, we bring around 400 students every year to Boston University's Charles River campus. Bosman frequently gets over 1,500 high school students to the Boston area Copley, coming from across the world, concentrated a lot in the New England area, but also we have people from California and globally like coming to our conference, as well as the IRR, which this podcast is a part of, major global academic publication with anything in international relations. I really like the IRR in terms of like, you can basically just write about whatever subject you want with a, within any region that you want. And I think that's truly unique, especially when you get to publish it in such a reputable location like the Library of Congress. We also have our UNA USA branch, Students for the UN, also known as SUN. They do a lot of advocacy work, a lot of community work, and really understanding how it is to be a global sustainable leader and how to make really important impact in your community, especially because we're in Boston University. So we are in the heart of Boston and making sure that we leave a lasting impact in embetterment in the embetterment of our city is super important to Sun. And as well as being able to sort of target the UN sustainable goals, but also sort of educate our membership and our member base about what is so important about global affairs and how we need and why and how we need to address it today to make sure that we lead a sustainable life for the next generations, not only for our generation. Okay, so taking into account all the information you just gave us, thank you so much for that. Why did you choose neuroscience as your major? Yeah, so I think it's a little interesting because most of the time you would expect like an IR major or a poli-sci major or an econ major to be running this organization. Um, I sort of went in on a twofold. So I actually went in as a neuro-IR dual major. Um, and so 
international relations has been something I've always been interested in. I did modeling when in high school, so that's kind of where my interest stemmed. Um, and sort of, I was kind of like, you know, like class participation in high school. Like I never participated in class and I really was like, my grades are kind of tanking by it. So I joined the Maori Wen organization. And like, honestly, that was like the catalyst to join Maori Wen. But I fell in love with sort of the art of basically pulling together a lot of information that you may have never known before, a lot of research and being able to actively like basically role play, implementing and developing policies as much as it's role playing, essentially. It really does allow you to think about how global leaders are responding to issues and how sort of you're able to solve big issues or even small issues through a historical framework or even the modern framework of like what are the implementation styles, what are the current metrics that you have involved, what are the current limitations that are involved in sort of being able to target and solve solutions, like target and solve problems that you are basically like addressing. Um, but in terms of neuroscience, I've always been interested in behavior. So one of the things that I really found interesting in high school, so I took AB psychology and sort of throughout the studies, you sort of learn just how different we are and how able, how different we are able to develop. But also if you literally have, so there's an entire twin study where there is twin separated birth. They have no idea what, like no idea about each other. And yet they have the same name. They have the same lives. They marry the same women with the same name. They have the same descriptions. That's kind of uncanny. And like at the same time, when you have twins that grow up in the same family, how is it that they grew up in the same environment? I'm assuming went to the same school. I'm assuming had the same type of home life. Maybe it's slightly different, but mostly the same type of home life. And yet they could have completely polar opposite personalities or completely polar opposite political beliefs. That is, I think, sort of the beauty and the mystery of the brain. And in terms of the sciences, like it's said that like we know like 90% of chemistry, like 80% of physics, 70% of biology. The brain is like, we have 10%. We like barely know anything about it. And we like scratching the surface. It's like, we have a lot of like the technical knowledge of like, this happens to that, this neuron fires here. The why and the how is completely unknown to us. And I think that's the beauty of neuroscience is that it's an ever changing field. It's an ever expanding field. And there's a lot of knowledge that we still don't know and a lot of debate around knowledge that we still don't know. And that's sort of like why I decided neuroscience was a really good thing to study. I think also just... Understanding neuroscience is so much different from sort of understanding biology and understanding mm -hmm. chemistry because of that interdisciplinary aspect with psychology, where it's so important to not only just understand how the molecular biology of the brain works, but also how it generally affects our day. And like the entire field of cognitive neuroscience, that combination of understanding the high level, our behavior, but also the low level of our molecular makeup and frameworks, combining that together to really understand how we can measure different levels of human activity and how we can see when behavior is adjusted, behavior is different, and sort of why it is that we sort of behave in the ways that we do, even when circumstances would make it seem like you would behave somewhat differently or like behave in a manner which you were like unexpected. So that's kind of why I got involved in neuroscience. Um, and I've never regretted it. I don't think I've ever. So I dropped the IR major as a freshman, but okay. I've always stuck with neuro. Um, I think it's really cool and really fascinating. It is kind of hard at times because I'm like the brain is kind of kind of a mystery. So like we really don't know much about it. But like I find it really rewarding and like, you know, there's so much still to discover and there's so much opportunity there. So I thought it was like a really cool field and it's like has a lot of application for many other diverse interdisciplinary fields as well. I think having had AP psychology in high school myself, I totally do relate to what you just spoke about. And moreover, after listening to you speak about neuroscience, I think I might want to change my major to oh that. Oh my god, amazing. We always need more <laughs> neuro majors. In fact, like, don't even, like, you don't have to switch <clears throat> neuro majors, but maybe take a neuroscience class. 
Or maybe yeah, a psychology think, class. Yeah. There are plenty of classes that are like are friendly to beginners or friendly to like people who like are humanities oriented or IR oriented. There are plenty of classes out there, especially at BU, where it's like you don't really need the knowledge as mm-hmm. long as you have like the motivation to learn about it. You mm. can figure it out on the way there. No, I think I totally do agree to that. Yeah. But you know, like. How do you, as an individual, how do you juggle working in these two opposing fields? I mean, on one hand, you're a neuroscience major. On the other hand, you're also running the Vuya. Does it get really difficult at times? Yeah, I would say there are definitely ups and downs to it. Um, time management is definitely something I continue to have to work on. Um, if you don't, if you guys don't know about the app Notion, it's a popular app that just recently popped up in a lot of study grams or study blogs. Like. It is a fundamental way to change your life if you have the time to like build a system that works mm. with you. Um, I used to bullet journal. I still oh. bullet journal. And so from there, I basically like organize a list of tasks that I need to target for the day. And uh, not going to lie, that task list exponentially grows, grows more every day. And like I can't cross off everything. But it's mm-hmm. also about understanding that there is almost no way to cross off everything if you of keep course. having tasks added to you. So it's not really about just like making sure that you target everything that you need to do in one day, but also being like more kind to yourself when you don't finish your massive task list because mm-hmm. you constantly have things being added to it. And I think that um, for myself personally, I've always been interested in the liberal arts, but also really into science. So I think that dual aspect of me really helps when it comes to sort of dividing that life between neuroscience and international relations. On one end, in classroom, I'm literally studying about the brain, and the other end, I'm talking about MUN. I think that... It's easier when you're used to it, especially mm-hmm. in high school where that was my common divide. Like, I definitely got used to it there. But I would say, honestly, just remembering that, like, you know, um, that's, uh, you need to sort of enjoy what you're doing in mm-hmm. order to have the motivation to be able to do it. And also, like, honestly, like, I don't sleep much. <laughs> um, unfortunately for me, I have been sleeping a lot more this year, but, like, sleep. Like, please, like, I've, it fundamentally changed, like, the way I interacted with things when I got more sleep. And like, you know, mm. as a neuroscientist and like a neuroscience major, like we all know like sleep is important. We still of don't course, get enough sleep. But like fundamentally this year, like I think the amount of sleep I've gotten has really been able to change how I rationally perceive things. Mm-hmm. And not even from a motivational standpoint, but like just sitting down and concentrating has become mm-hmm. a lot easier. Um, so yeah, I think sleep is one of the most important things as well when it comes to sort of like being able to juggle a lot of different aspects and also just being like, you have a set list of tasks for the day. There are priority deadlines for tomorrow. Finish the priorities first mm. and then figure everything else later. And also remember just to like take breaks and take time for yourself. And like you have to eat, you have to take a shower, you have to do your laundry, you have mm-hmm. to do something fun for a while. It's all about just like making sure like you don't get too hard on yourself for like taking the time that you need to like rest and taking the time you need to like recover. So that way you can do all of the hard stuff later on. But since you have such a busy schedule and you just mentioned that time management is basically your greatest tool, what are some methods that you use to keep your mental health in check? Because I would presume that the pressure can sometimes really get to you. Yeah, uh, what I would say is um, one of the things I tend to do is I keep a journal. Mm -hmm. Um, Some might call it a diary, some might whatever. It's basically just a reflection of like my day. Like your emotional state, what you learned that day, sort of reflections and music. I like to call it like a musing on the day where it's like a basically a, like sweet. a small looking back of like what happened today. And a lot of times like I don't even write about like the major events of my day, but like something small that like really impacted you or something like a kindness that someone gave you or like a really not 
has doesn't have to be like a very <clears throat> significant event, but something that really left a lasting impression on you. And I think that's one of the ways where it's like very much a center point of like my end of the day, where it's like regardless of the time, I center myself at like writing that down, um, and sort of like making sure like you know, with that journal, and you can easily peruse back. It's just like as much as like you're a busy student, as much as you're a leader, as much as you do all these things. You are still a person. You are still、mm-hmm. a human. You will still have feelings. You still have emotions. You still have things that you struggle with. You still have things that sort of drag you down at times. And respecting that and understanding that as a sense of yourself as well, but as it's even though it's part of yourself, it's not something that should drag you down. In、mm-hmm. fact, you should carry it and like carry it proudly because you are not a perfect human being, and that should be like very much accepted. But it's those imperfections that make us all unique. Like, I think that's one of the best ways to sort of make sure that you have at least some form of grounding、mm-hmm. point to like really focus on, in terms of time management. Also, just you have to maintain a calendar, no, <laughs>、oh, or like、yeah. whatever organizational system works for you, maintain it.、Mm-hmm. Um, bullet journaling, as much as I loved it, as much as it looked pretty or like whatever, it takes a lot of time to make. Of course, it takes like two hours to make each spread, and I had that time in high school. I don't have that time now. So what I do in the beginning of the year is that I have a Google Calendar or I set up my Notion. So All my classes, all my assignments are like everything that is routine is put in, and whenever an event comes up that I need to know note about, I put it in the calendar like immediately. And like I have like on like the Mac, I have like I think twelve different calendars. I very much、yeah. separate it out into like each individual class. If this is like a hangout, if this is like a date, if this is like a if this is like an event that I want to go to, if this is an employment thing, if this、mm-hmm. is an interview thing, is this like an organizational thing? Very much like. Step, being able to like consistently see what you have to do in the day, I think, is very not peaceful, but like very much can be overwhelming. But also, like it's sort of gratifying to see. Okay, this is my schedule. I know what my schedule is. Here's the times I have where I can rest.、Mm-hmm. Here's the times I have to get coffee. Here's the times I have to eat, etc. This is just being able to just see it and like recognizing like how much time you have in a day.、Mm-hmm. It's like very helpful. I think. I mean, I think you've put it quite plainly and in the best way. I think simplifying your sort of schedule and just understanding and accepting the fact that okay, I have a lot of time slots for everything that I need to be able to have a good day or a healthy day. I think sounds like sounds like something I should really implement.、Um, so, how would you, Ethan, describe your journey to becoming the president of the Buya? And did you ever feel like other students who might have been in competition with you had an upper hand? Because their majors were in the field of international relations or political science. Um, I think there's like two answers to that. Um, it feels like there's a disadvantage a lot of times. Um,、mm-hmm. there really isn't none. I think a lot of the times we forget, like as much as like you are a leader of an organization that like focuses on this one area,、mm-hmm. it's not really about the area or like the subject matter. It's、mm-hmm. about basically being able to and being recognized as an individual that is able to command, or not even just command, but be able to take ownership of their issues, ownership of the problems that may arise in that organization,、mm-hmm. and work cohesively with other people to solve it. And in terms of my journey to get to the Buya presidency,、um, I joined as a freshman.、Um, I did IBUCS, which is our very first like trial conference for the Mana BU team. Um, and so I joined like the events thing, and I went to like Manabiu originally. So I was part of the competitive Manuwen scene for a while here in college.、Um, and from there, I joined the Secretariat of Barman, which is like the staff that runs the collegiate conference. And from there, I really fell—I like to say—fell into like sort of the Buya mode, where it was like working on Buya, being a part of Buya, going to different the various different events that Buya had, and 
slowly, I've got a lot of friends within Buya. I think that's another important thing that to keep in mind how you sort of stay in Buya is you meet so many incredible, intelligent, smart, funny people mm-hmm. that you want to be around, that you want to have influence you. And that's another, like, just how close Buya is able to pull you in just because of the level and the caliber of people it attracts. And from cool. there, as a sophomore, I ran for SG. Of, so, like, the SG is the position of Secretary General who runs the Collegiate Conference. I ran and lost. And that year, I was still pre-med. So, like, I still was uh, operating under, like, the delusion that I was going to be a doctor. Side note, I definitely <laughs> should not be a doctor. Um, but, yeah, I was taking organic chemistry, and things got a little bit overwhelming at the time. So, I definitely took a step back at Buya. Um, I definitely did not go to a lot of meetings as a sophomore. And then I decided, like, you know what? I don't want to be pre-med. I want to do something else. And sort of I could relocate the energy that I was spending towards pre-med to somewhere else. And I was like, I haven't been to Buya in a while. So let, let's do this now. And I've always liked systems and organization. So I applied to be secretary. Mm-hmm. Um, I won it. And so junior year, I was secretary. And like I described secretary as like the master overlord of organizations or like operations within Buya. Mm-hmm. They have like a very close interconnected sphere in understanding every single thing that Buya needs, whether that's booking rooms, whether that's maintaining the schedules, maintaining the website your primary source of communication from Buya to other members. It is such an integrated member when it comes to like the core of Buya, of the core mechanics of how Buya functions, that I really was able to gain a holistic view and a holistic appreciation for the entirety of the organization, just how much energy and how much hard work every single member and every single branch puts in to what we publish, what we create, what we compete in. And like it really was a rewarding experience. And so that's why I sort of ran for president and I was lucky enough to uh, be elected president and I would say like you know I put in a lot of things in my proposal that like I would see like a very ambitious but also things that I'm just like I feel that creating and fostering an intellectual community where we feel safe and welcomed is super important to me mm-hmm. and like whether or not like uh, we've succeeded in that <clears throat> remains to be said however what I think is super important as well is like having a team that holds myself accountable has been very important to me um, especially because, like, I am not, like, as I said earlier, like, I'm not, like, a perfect individual. I have so mm-hmm. much on my plate, but also, like, I have a lot of things where I'm just, like, I might not be the best in this area. And it takes a lot of courage and a lot of responsibility of people to call me out when I'm, like, oh, I'm doing this incorrectly. Or I'm, like, oh, this is, like, basically, like, not how it's supposed to go. And, like, that in itself, I think, is another thing, a part of this organization that I've always admired, where it's, like, these people are not afraid to speak out deservingly so they get to speak out and that's where this organization just like they speak out for what they believe in they speak out for what is right and that is something where i feel like should be continued in this organization no i agree i think so basically even though you're the president of booyah you never feel like you're surrounded by yes men who will just agree with everything you're doing because they feel like they have to um yeah i would say that like that doesn't really exist in booyah i would say like sometimes like maybe it feels like that way maybe some like perspective wise it Mm -hmm. could be um, but especially like with this e-board that I'm like, like I run this uh, current executive board, that's definitely not the situation. They're very vocal in their opinions, deservingly so. And they very much like when they want something or they believe something should be done one way, they fight for it. And like very much admire that because like it's one thing to like talk back to mm-hmm. like your parents or whatever, like someone that you're close with. It's another to talk back to like a complete stranger or like mm-hmm. someone that you don't necessarily like are super close with. So like I have a lot of admiration for everyone um that like serves and like is vocal about their beliefs vocal about the opinions they give off and sort of just making sure that 
their passion for this organization remains and like is directly shown for the mm-hmm. work and the commitment that they've put into this organization. That's wonderful. So you spoke about how you thought at a point of time in your life that you'd become a doctor. So what career do you think you'll end up having with neuroscience as a major and at the same time also being the president of such a big international affairs organization? Yeah, so I'm actually pre-law now. Um oh. so like surprise, I switched to my switch my career path to be pre-law. Um I think for me personally, like I talked about how I admire systems or I like working in systems, especially with Buya, which is such a massive organization. There's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of things that you can just see and like you'd see the whole picture and you see what things are like not working and you're basically pour- mm-hmm. pouring oil over mm-hmm. it to like make sure the gears are working again. And that's kind of how I see the role that I want to play in the future, whether that's like leadership or something else where it's like operational focus, that's where I think I'm going to basically end up. And with neuroscience, like things like that, like there's always a different form of combination of science things, of humanities things, of like expertise things that like really blend these two things together. Mm-hmm. Intellectual property, for instance, in terms of law, being able to be a lawyer that sort of understands how to like put together the law that they are protected, but at the same time, being able to understand the concept that they're putting forth so that way you can accurately represent and accurately understand what is so important that this requires a patent, what is so important about this invention that the intellectual property literally needs Mm -hmm. to be protected. And I think that that requires a lot of diversity in terms of knowledge, Mm -hmm. like not just liberal arts, not just science, but like being able to really synthesize and understand everything in like at a certain level where it's like, you might not be the expert in this, but you know enough where you can find the experts that do. And when you talk to those experts, you can generate a sense of what questions you need to ask mm-hmm. so that you get the information that you need to know to best resolve it. And I think if it wasn't like a lawyer, um, I feel like it's somewhere in operation. So I basically like one of the things I've always thought about is like healthcare consulting or like oh. not like pharmaceutical consulting or just consulting in general. Um, so being able to problem solve, especially with like, I have a research background in neuroscience and sort of like a simp- and an ability to sort of synthesize information from across various fields to sort of recommend a solution or recommend something to like, like a customer where it's like, this is your target audience. This is the people that you need to market towards or, or like, this is the reason why your current strategy is like not working mm-hmm. because like there's an ex competitor that you may not have noticed. And like, being able just to like take a holistic view of the entire sort of situation surrounding it and being able to pinpoint specific things that they could work on and pinpoint specific issues, I think has been a strength of mine. And I feel like I want to continue doing that moving forward. But I think that was wonderful to listen to. and But you know, like it really makes us, I think, wonder that since, you know, you're interested in so many kinds of different educational fields, did you ever feel pressured to stick to a singular stream of education? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, my parents would probably want me to say no. Um, but like, definitely, I was pressured. I felt pressured a little bit to like continue in one field, particularly mm-hmm. somewhat of a scientific field. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you know, I sort of realized that like, as much as like you can stick to one field and focus on one field, the world is so interconnected and everything is just so sort of compounded together that there really is no way to like cohesively exist in this like world anymore without having at least a fundamental understanding of everything that's involved. You may not have to have like a fundamental understanding of like complexities and like international Mm -hmm. affairs, like the complexities between like two countries and their like political and like diplomatic dynamics, but you do have to recognize that 
there's conflict between these countries. Of course. I may not know why the history, like the history between the conflict, I may not know why it started, but I know there's conflict. Of and course. I think that sticking to a single stream of inf- like education might help you sort of be an expert in that field. Mm-hmm. But those experts also always have a wide view and also mm-hmm. always have a varied education involved. So like scientists are not just like limited to like they're like reputable fields of expertise. They branch mm-hmm. off a lot and they still are able to have high level conversations with other mm-hmm. people that may be like across different fields. And that's simply because the people that sort of focus on these higher level educations are fostering their own intellectual curiosities. Um, I think one of the things that I find interesting is like you see people from like Bill Gates or like Elon Musk, they're yeah. reading psychology mm-hmm. books, they're reading neuroscience books, they're reading books on sociology. Mm-hmm. They're just getting more information. And I think that information is truly like something that like helps benefit everyone. Mm-hmm. And so information should be freely shared and freely obtained, no matter what sort of industry or field it may be a part of. I think I completely agree with you. I don't think there ever needs to be a full stop when it comes to what kind of information you can give yourself or what kind of education you may want to give yourself. It's available for you to access for a reason. Yeah, exactly. So I definitely do resonate with that. But what were your initial expectations coming into college? And how would you say they've changed? Um, I actually didn't really know what to expect coming into college. Like you okay. have such a pre-notion coming in from like the <laughs> movies you watch, the TV shows you watch. I kind of was expecting like a like large lecture halls and like mm-hmm. teachers bore, like lecturing you and you falling asleep in class. And like I definitely had classes where I was like in a two, like a 200, 400 person room like in Morse Auditorium. Where mm-hmm. I was like watching the lecture and I was like, there's another 300 students in this room and I don't think the teacher knows who I am. If I sleep, he won't even care because there's another <laughs> 350 kids that literally has to learn the material. But also like I just underestimated just how sort of interconnected this university can be or like a mm-hmm. large how, how interconnected a large or like organization can be. I literally sometimes walk on the street and I like every other like every other like 15 seconds, I'm stopping to wait for hello at someone. And that really, like, it depends on your personality, but I think it's just the highlight of just, like, being able to, like, live in an environment where everyone's around, like, your same age. Like, Mm -hmm. everyone has very interests, but, like, they are around your same age. This is your generation and being able to interact with people and meet new people and, like, experiencing, like, a variety of opinions and a variety of, like, interests and a variety of beliefs very much, like, helps foster, like, a different sense of growth and a different sense of independence. Um, I think in high school, especially, like, you're sort of kept in your little bubble of your city, of your town. Even if you live in a big town, like, you're kept in your little school bubble. Mm -hmm. And once you go to, like, a big college like BU, like, I can't really say this about, like, maybe, like, Amherst College or, like, Williams, it's a little bit smaller. But there's still, like, this popping of the bubble Mm -hmm. where it's, like, you get to finally experience at least something different Mm -hmm. and something that, like, is necessarily outside of your, like, typical, like, modern experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that really, like, helps impact your sort of collegiate experience where it's just, like, there is almost never going to be another point in your life where you're going to be surrounded by so many of your peers, Mm -hmm. like, of your generation. So you might as well take advantage of that, meet as many people as you can, try and get as much information and as much, like, knowledge and, like, experience that you have interacting with just varied interests and varied people. Wow. So talking about classes, are there any specific classes that you took uh, in college which helped you realize what you wanted to study or your areas of interest. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like classes, I would say neuroscience 100 and 101 was actually like when I like, like is like a deep dive into like a broad perspective of neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Throughout that class, I was like, okay, 
this is cool. This is interesting. That really confirmed that I still wanted to be in neuroscience. At the same time, I was taking like this introductory level IR course, um, IR 230. Um, as much as I enjoyed the holistic view of that course, I recognized that like, I really was not interested in mm. some of it. Like, I like, like, it, it may seem like very like stereotypical or like very like common, like because I'm like an Asian American, like that my focus is in Asia. But like, I really was kind of tired of hearing about more Western and like more European history and mm-hmm. like American history in particular, especially because like in uh, like middle school and high school, like I had like almost three or four years of American history. Of like, course, of course. it is so boring. Not that it's like bad history, like not that I it's understand. like you shouldn't take it, but like it is, you have done it a lot and like you never get like this varied interest and very, very much expertise into other areas, which is why I sort of like would have preferred that. And so that's why I sort of fell out of IR, sort of recognizing that, like, it's important to get a good holistic education, like, in IR especially. Like, I recognize mm-hmm. that. But definitely, like, so- taking some of the classes and I was, like, hearing about the agreements. Like, one of them was the Sykes-Pico agreement and, like, that was mm-hmm. in Africa. I was, like, I can't, like, I don't, I really, like, <laughs> yes, it impacts international affairs. Yes, it impacts the current situation. I don't find it interesting, unfortunately. And that's fair. Yeah, that's and I think fair. that's why it's, like, I didn't really, like continue on with IR, I would say. Um, in terms of uh, philosophy, I would say, maybe symbolic logic. Honestly, uh, uh, Philosophy 360 at um, BU um, kicked me uh, in my ass, like, a lot. <laughs> a lot. It was very hard. However, it gave me such an appreciation for such a unique class where it's like, content-wise, there was almost nothing you learned. Wow. In terms of, like, raw data, raw information that you could really synthesize. What it did teach is how that you can like sort of take language and look at it and sort of compare and understand precisely what it means and precisely what it's saying. Wow. And it's like understanding like this, like X, Y, and Z from this, you can come to these conclusions. It was not about like a class where you were like gaining new knowledge, but a class where you were basically understanding how it is that you can construct an argument mm-hmm. that symbolically makes sense. And like the logic behind sort of like recognizing like this is the premise, this is the conclusion, how you can prove it, how you can understand it, how you can cl- conclude this is true by, like, what you are given. Mm-hmm. I think that was really cool in terms of, like, it was a class that was really hard because, like, it wasn't information post- fake mm-hmm. focus. It was, like, basically, like, understanding and, like, changing the way you sort of think about things. I think wow. that's a really interesting course. And a very hard course, though. Um, I don't know if I would recommend it. Um, I like I am recommending it in terms of like the content. If you're not really <laughs> interested in it, like I would drop it like within the first week because it is a hard course to like mm-hmm. get into, especially if you're not interested in something like that. But I think like for the like the sort of nerd I am that I found that course like kind of endearing at least. Interesting. So um I know you talked about being interested in South Korea specifically as a region. Mm-hmm. So how did this interest originate? Are there any specific topics that you're interested in that area? Yeah, so like, um, like I'm part of the K-pop dance organization on campus. So like, oh. I would say like K-pop is one of the main reasons, like catalyst into Korea that I sort of, sort of uh, had as a kid. Um, why well, was told by my parents that I literally listened to like the old K-pop like ballads to mm-hmm. go to bed. So I feel like oh. like I like to say like I've had like a long exposure to like the history of K-pop, and I also took Korean at BU. So oh, I, like okay. I took two years of Korean, but don't ask me to speak Korean. Like I lucky forget a lot of things, but like <laughs> I, I won't, did. Don't worry. I did take like Korean here. I did take like Korean like uh, popular music courses here at BU and sort of analyzing it in Korean. So, like very much like Korea has always been 
sort of fascinating to me um, and sort of like the wave of sort of Korean entertainment and Korean mm. um, Korean dramas and all that actually like originated in 2005. So that was the original wave. It's called like uh, How You or like like I, there's various names for it. But like it's recognized called as the Korean wave where it's like Korean entertainment slowly overtook Japanese mm. entertainment as like predominant Asian entertainment. And now like the market's very different where it's like now everyone has a stake in it. But definitely yeah, around that time, Korea started to slowly become the dominant factor. And from there, sort of like my interest in Korea like slowly growed and growed and mm-hmm. growed. And then I listened to a lot more K-pop. Not really in middle school. Like I still listened to K-pop in middle school. Like I had that phase. But like it really hit full force in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the music, like you don't really need to... Like sometimes like when I'm listening to like American rap, like I don't know what they're speaking about. <laughs> which is why I'm like, as much as like... The language doesn't necessarily matter. Like, what they're saying doesn't matter. But, like, if you like how it sounds, if you like of the intonation, course. if you like how they're be able, to, able to, like, vocally express it, I think that's all you really need to sort of appreciate music. And sort of that's where my, like, love and passion for sort of that area, and especially South Korea, like, grew. Um, I've been... I went to Korea, like, before I even, like, knew any Korean, oh. which I think is, like, like very much like a independent, like... I'm an adult now, and I can do it. Like, I can be independent. I went three weeks in Korea without speaking the language. I spent the My two weeks God. in the capital, and then I, like, flew around to, like, Busan, which is, like, a small, like, a large coastal city on the south end of Korea. And then I went to Jeju, which is, um like, the like the island, like, right off of Korea for a while. And I, I almost, like, ca- got caught in monsoons, like, twice. So I almost oh wasn't God. able to fly home because, like, you know, a monsoon was about to hit. But luckily, I was, like, I left alive. But, like, um definitely, it was, like changed my understanding of the world because like it's so different everything course, is so different yeah, yeah. and like culturally so different like even though we're similar and we have like a lot of the same aspects there's a lot of things in korea where it's like i wish it was like like that here and there's a lot of things in america where i wish korea had so i think that's mm-hmm. a very much like having a solid interest in a different culture and a different like entirely of like a different country like really is able to dynamically change your understanding of your mm-hmm. own society and how like you can fix problems or like how things should be, like, how things you, like, you want, like, prefer to be rather than, like, of than like, existing systems. No, I think I, especially I think I really uh, resonate with when you spoke about how, you know, sometimes you don't understand American rap itself. I mean, you don't always have to, I think lyrics and music are, they work very well together, but they don't need to be necessities for you to be able to enjoy the genre. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you can enjoy any and all kinds of music, yeah. whether you understand the lyrics or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think moving on onto a similar stream, mm-hmm. in your opinion, what events in recent times have left a global impact mm-hmm. and why do you believe so? Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, like sticking on the South Korea trend, I think I mostly but know about BTS now in America. Uh-huh. BTS um, has a very like cultural and significant impact in our world. Um, and like you can see that from multiple different metrics. BTS, for example, is about 4% of the Korean economy right now. They make up like a like a, an entire country's like GDP of like four percent. Like that's just how big they are, and like they are not only just ambassadors for their entire country and their entire culture, but I don't know if you can say like Kendrick Lamar would speak at the United Nations. Of course, I don't know if you would say Kendrick Lamar or like Kanye West would be UNICEF ambassadors or like able to speak in front of the entire political body of the General Assembly talking about changes that need to be mm-hmm. made in like mm-hmm. the world and changes that need to be made, especially for the youth. And so like. BTS fans are affectionately known as ARMY. Um, it's like yeah. the, it, which actually stands for Adorable MC Representatives of You. Does it make sense in English? Not necessarily. But basically what their fan base is, 
representing is like the fans of BTS are like representatives of like what the youth think and they're empowered to speak out about what the youth believes. And BTS definitely does that when it comes to their songs. More recently, their songs may not have approached this as much, but a lot of their old songs talked about sort of depression and sort of like things that like the highly different aspects of American, like not American, Korean society where it's like, it's like high school bullying, high school targeting, mm. um, and aspects of that where it's like, it's like such a fundamental difference of like perspective of like how music should be oriented and music mm-hmm. should be run versus this country, which I think is very interesting. I would also say just like with Squid Game, especially like right now, like Korean entertainment is really becoming like such a dominant preclusive wave. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's such a soft power move. Like you don't merely think of South Korea as like a military powerhouse or like a political mm-hmm. powerhouse. But even here in Korea, you have this notion of BTS. You have this notion of Squid Game. That's soft power in itself. That is like of cultural soft power, like being like, okay, I know what this country is. Not for mm-hmm. the fact that they have a strong military, not for the fact that they have a lot of money, not for the fact that they have a strong political economy, but their culture is literally like infecting waves mm-hmm. in multiple societies. And it like mostly recently branched into America. But like in South America and Europe, it was already there, like very mm-hmm. much presently. Like they were selling out shows in Brazil. They were selling out shows in Colombia long Ooh, before wow. they started to sell out shows in the US. And like, it's just, like, a different sort of environment where it's, like, people are, like, ever so becoming more closer, irregardless of the borders between us and countries. Mm-hmm. And I think that with South Korea's sort of rise in this culture sphere, they are in a unique position where culturally and socially, people are looking at them more as, like, not, like, leaders or sort of something that to take inspiration from. And I think that really creates this new understanding of, like, how it is you're supposed to, like, be able to, like, mm-hmm. be... Especially because, like, you know, one of the things that uh, BTS is called out for commonly in America or Australia especially um, is, like, oh, they are wearing makeup and they look feminine or, like, they're gay. They must be gay. Like, they're obviously gay. Like, that is, like, like, I feel like something problematic in this country where it's, like, that notion of masculinity or, mm-hmm. like, at least toxic masculinity. In Korea, it's not necessarily a fact of, like, you have to like look good or wear makeup like it is an expectation that you groom yourself and look good in that mm-hmm. country because what you put on like your like physical expression is how people ex- ex- like respect you and how people see you and so who are you going to trust someone who's basically wearing like a really tattered ripped outfit that might be stylistically cool or like the business professional <laughs> well-groomed well hair like skin is perfect guy you're gonna trust the skin is perfect guy especially in that culture <laughs> and like South Korea's economy has taken a hit in, like, the 1990s. It was, like, an entire economic crash. The IMF had to be involved. There were many things that there was wrong with their economy. Mm-hmm. And it was blamed on sort of strong men at that time, that really toxic masculinity figure that, like, basically caused the collapse of their economy. Oh. And from there, there was a cultural change in, like, what they perceived as masculinity or what they perceived as what was a good male. Oh. And it changed into this more effeminate man that was able to be responsible and take care of your family. And that is where the, like, the origins of this arise. And, like, it's literally so interesting because, like, I literally, like, it's weird. Like, it's weird that I know so much about this. But, like, the term for, like, a flower boy, like, is one of the things. It's called, like, uh, it's Gotminam. Um, so, basically, that translates to flower boy. And flower boy is very much, like, a very pretty boy. Very, someone that looks kind of effeminate. Someone, like, that has the white skin, the pink lips. But if you look at the terminology, like, or the wording, um, flower is god, so that's like makes sense. But minam is traditionally the word used to describe a beautiful woman. Oh. 
Oh. And the characteristic for man is namja, which is completely different from what it is. But the term minam is like referring to a flower boy, not a woman. So it's basically indicating that like culturally, there's a significant <clears throat> change where it's like they don't want that like harsh toxic masculinity to be involved anymore. Mm-hmm. They want it to be professional. They want it to look good. They want like their men to be reliable, dependent, like financially stable, but also able to groom themselves. Publicly, which is why they have a, such a different notion of what masculinity should be and what is acceptable behavior that, like, we look at it as, like, something, like, that's more gay or something that's more feminine and that's bad. But they look at it as, like, what masculinity should be. Because it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. They're, like, they're men. It doesn't matter. Like, mm-hmm. that really, it really doesn't change on how they act. So I think that that's, like, culturally something that I always think that we could definitely improve upon. Of especially course. like the concept there is like it's literally called skinship where it's like contact with like hugging or like mm-hmm. like holding hands with like a guy like because you're excited. That's almost seen as like it's a frowned upon in this culture, like in America as much. Like I mean like literally like if like if you're hanging with your like homies and like you hug them, it's like sometimes like that's considered weird or like kind of gay. And I'm just like, why? It's People like people would always stare at you like yeah, they always stare at them. It's just like, that's kind of weird. And I feel like, you know, it's more accepted in, like, that society. And, like, it's as hmm. much as, like, you know, that's not actually a masculinity. It's just, like, friends being friends. However, it's not all, like, rainbows and sparkles in Korea. There's oh, a big misogynistic not. end on their end. And, like, every culture has their own problems. Of but, course. like, definitely there's, like, an underbelly because of their rapid cultural and economic mm-hmm. development rise. Like, they've developed so much since the 1960s. We had 250 years to change our culture. Of course. They had 40 years, and people that were, like, born in the 60s are still alive and kicking in in politics. So culturally, can you can imagine, like, if culturally they were basically back in the, like, 19th century, and suddenly they're brought into the 21st century, mm-hmm. a lot of cultural aspects are definitely changed. And, like, by comparisons, like, here, like, the legalization of weed is, like, something that's been major federally. Yes. Weed is almost seen as the worst thing there. Like, it is, it's complete, like, it is, it is taboo to smoke weed. Same it's like, in India. It's, like, 20 years in prison, 10 years in prison. However, um, literal, a literal stabbing is, like, two. Like, government corruption is, like, maybe what? six months. And, like, there are just many things, I'm, like, that you can learn from, like, a different culture and how they interact and, like, how they, like, interact with different, like, especially the justice system, like, what their priorities are. Of course. Like, marijuana can get you, like, more years than a stabbing. Yeah. Which I think is, like, very much, like... I mean, the effects of marijuana will go away in a couple of hours. What about the yeah, dead man? Yeah, exactly. And, like, there's this common phrase where they, like, they fly to Japan. If, like, a star flies to Japan, oh, they're getting, like, weed treatment or something. But, like, it's a common... Like, it's a, a literal, like, a cultural thing there, which I think is kind of interesting. But, like, at the same time, I'm like, mm. there's such a... You can't look at any country positively, just, just in the positive. You also of have to course. look at the negative light. I mean, I feel like like when we talk about, you know, how I have a lot of friends who are a part of the army. I have a lot of friends who are big fans of BTS and Red Velvet and so many other mm-hmm. K-pop bands. Fans of K-dramas and, you mm-hmm. know, all of those stars. I feel like the biggest reason why there is this large amount of criticism, and I would say not just in the Western world, even where I am from, India, is because people don't understand the difference between gender and sex. Mm-hmm. So for someone to be a man, that's their biological sex. Mm-hmm. For them to dress a particular way, whether they want to put makeup or not, those are gender norms which we mm-hmm. as a society created. That's a psychological mm-hmm. term. Mm-hmm. Whereas sex is a biological term. Mm-hmm. So when we have the power mm-hmm. to change something for the better, like change toxic masculinity for the better because those are the norms we created, mm-hmm. why should we stop ourselves? We're not changing a tradition which is good or 
is rooted in positivity mm-hmm. so i think that's probably a difference that people it's hard it's a hard pill for people to swallow yeah definitely and i think like structurally like we always forget a lot of the times that like society as itself like the rules of quote unquote society like we need them like it's just like exactly. like it's there's nothing like that is actively being defined as such that we need to follow it and so because there is no like it's not like ordained or anything it's not like written in a book somewhere that like we can all see and witness and we all should follow that's not how our life works of course and so very much like we can make do of like what it is and we can impact the social change of ourselves and i think each generation has some a role to play in it especially because like especially now i feel like because of like i hate like i don't hate healthcare that's not the impression of this but with the improvement of healthcare there are a lot of people that are actively making policies that do not understand our generation or do not understand our priorities and they think they do mm-hmm. but in reality they don't care about our generation because they're not going to be here when we are most impacted exactly by so i think like we definitely need more youth rep- representation everywhere and like with the advent of technology as well the youth are not like uneducated mm-hmm. there are youths out there like 14 15 16 that can understand deep of complex course. issues and can help solve them but they see our age as like a limitation or like a weapon against us and mm. i think that the young people especially like more recently like they are starting to recognize that like the young people that are like are highly educated and they know what's up like they yeah. literally know what's going to happen and it's like they're not willing to accept that anymore versus like a time when it was like expected that your elders or like was like fully respected and fully like they know exactly what they're doing they need to be the, like they are the only ones that like should be like understood and respected like that time is over like everyone mm. as long as you have like a like a like everyone's thought is valid when it comes to a situation and sometimes like you know when you're older you also lose some of that creativity aspect where it's like you're so stuck in mm. the system that you've developed or not even the system <laughs> that you developed but the system you grew up in the system that you've maintained throughout your time here that you can't really see when you have to go outside the box to solve something or like you can't really mm. understand an out of the box system but the young can obviously like most not obviously but like most of the time see it much more quickly but again like i think this is the third time i'm saying this but i do definitely again resonate a lot with what you said because you know coming from india and uh, growing up in a strictly catholic all girls institution many a times you may be born with a lot of creativity or i think as a neuroscience major i'm sure you understand like the left side of the brain and the right side of the brain and yeah. one being dominant over the other sometimes you may be born with a lot of creativity but then i mean the years of i think the major years where your personality is formed because of your external environment that can really harm the way in which your creativity might grow mm-hmm. so i think i think and i i would safely presume that a lot of our listeners will also resonate with a lot of the things that you spoke about but i think to sort of you know begin to conclude this wonderful conversation that we've had uh what is one advice that you would give to our listeners who may aspire and hope to reach your place one day mm-hmm. um in terms of advice I, what i think something what i would say is um be able like always like listen to ev- like everyone that's around you and like mm. be able to not only just listen to them and take their feedback with like not like take their feedback very like mm-hmm. that is exactly what you need to be as a leader because your actions your words really do matter they impact so many people and like I am not the perfect person I've said this before but like I really respect it when someone like calls me out mm-hmm. on like something that I've done incorrectly or something that I shouldn't have done mm-hmm. and like that in and of itself is a gift that you should be granting other people mm-hmm. and like being outspoken enough to like 
and caring enough to like tell someone that like, hey, they're wrong. They need to change this perspective. I think it's one of the most powerful things that you can do. But as a leader and as someone that like wants to be like improving yourself, you have to be open. You have to be able to sort of listen of and have to be able to take it in a constructive place and never to sort of understand it that it's like completely from a, like a hostile view because that's not the goal here. Like, of course, just being able to sort of understand. Um, that like everyone's perspective really does matter, mm-hmm. and like taking it into account and using it to reflect upon yourself is really important. I would say. No, I definitely agree. And uh, you know, unfortunately, to close things out, what is the most important lesson that you would say, in your opinion, that you've learned over the course of your amazing career? Um, in terms of a lesson that I've learned, I would say um, communication. Is the okay. most important thing. Mm. It's the most important gift. Um, being able to speak to someone is a gift, but being able to address a large audience is another mm-hmm. gift. And no matter how small or big your microphone is, your words have significant impact, and your words will have significant consequences. Mm-hmm. And it's important to get that wake up call to really understand it before you sort of venture out into the real world, where things could be a lot more scarier and a lot more Im- impactful by the things Definitely. you say. So I would say. My biggest lesson is that my like the communication like as much as you can like improve your communication and be like a better speaker, the words you actively choose to say will actively matter at all times, and rem- like don't sort of bring a toxicity into the world where like it doesn't need to be or like that you wouldn't want to see yourself. And I think definitely like communication as a whole is super important. So that's basically it. Well, that was beautiful, and thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to sit down and speak to us. This was truly an honor and a privilege, and I've had a great time speaking to you. I feel like not only me; I think all the listeners are probably feeling very inspired right now. So, thank you for that. I appreciate the, the comments. I don't know if I would say like it's necessarily like I'm super inspiring as a whole. I think it just it's a lot of just experience. I think mm-hmm. I think a lot of experience as a young person really defines. Sort of how you are able to see the world. Mm-hmm. I think, like honestly, just get as much experience as you can, of like course. with various things. But like, thank you so much. Like, I no, really thank you, here. thank you for being here. Thank you for taking out time. And yes, I hope we all take away from the wonderful things that you've told us. Thank, thank you. you. We would like to thank our podcast director, Lila Redler. A part-time audio engineer, Aunt Fam, script editor Joel Shapiro, co-editors in chief for the International Relations Review, Bridget Lang and Josh Wright, and the Boston University International Affairs Organization. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to reach out to us at inrelationto@buiaa.org.